This morning's reading is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know where they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax which she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads down to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Zion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. 
If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you have made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Thanks very much. Do sit down. So as as Jack's already introduced me, I'm Martin Hatfield. I'm the assistant minister at Godston Baptist Church. So um, not too far away, although further than I thought, as I discovered when I got off at the wrong junction, and, and then I went next door. How nice to have another church next door. I went next door, but I got here eventually, um, and thank you for that. And uh, uh, you might want to know that I'm a student at Spurgeon's College as well, so I spend half my time in, at the church, and I spend some time at Spurgeon's, and then I have three children and a wonderful wife who uh, works part-time as a GP. So there you are, a little bit about me, and it helps, I think, sometimes to know a little bit about who the preacher is before you have to hear, come to hear what God might have to say through them. Um, Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Lord, as we come to this passage, Lord, help us to connect with your message through the years. Lord, help us to hear what you have to say. Help us to come with minds and ears and eyes and hearts and spirits open and willing to hear And may the power of your Holy Spirit be with me as I come and share this word with your fellowship here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We had a lovely long reading. I know it's quite a long reading. Actually, I think it's really good to get that whole big portion of the story about Rahab fixed in our head before I come and say what I think God has to tell us through this passage. But I also want to start with another shorter reading from the New Testament. This is from the first chapter of Matthew. I'm just going to read three verses, beginning at verse 4. It's talking about Jesus' genealogy, his family tree. And the first person it mentions in chapter 4 is Ram. It says, Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. So in those three verses, we get to King David, and we know that Jesus is in David's line, so we kind of see that connection. We also mentioned Ruth, and many of you I know will know the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, that wonderful, if, tell you what, if you haven't read Ruth, right, it will take you, take you 20 minutes. You can sit down at home this afternoon, and you can read the wonderful story of Ruth, okay? Uh, and also, it mentions Rahab, and this is the same Rahab that we're talking about here in Joshua chapter 2, being no doubt 
about that. This is the same Rahab. You can trace it back historically as you look through the whole chronology of the Bible and you can trace that family tree all the way back through the story of the Old Testament. So Rahab, there she is in the genealogy of Jesus, an ancestor of Jesus. And in that family tree, she's just there as a woman's name, isn't she? Just a name, we might think. Just a name. May we have the first slide, which has got, after the title slides, there's a picture. Can you just have a look at this picture for a moment as, uh, as I just say a few more words? Just a name, we might think. But the problem is, Rahab usually isn't just a name. Rahab usually has a label. And in fact, even in the Bible, where both Paul and Peter, sorry, Paul and James mention Rahab, they give her a label. And actually, if you're talking often with Christians or with Jews or other people who are familiar with the story, Rahab becomes Rahab the prostitute. And that occupation is assigned to her as part of her title. And she very clearly becomes Rahab the prostitute and as if we're kind of saying, this is what she is, and that's all she ever was, and all she ever can, and all she ever will be. Here's a picture. We don't actually know the name of the artist, but it's from a kind of 18th century Renaissance Italian, or it might be 17th century actually, sorry, um, Italian school. And obviously, there are probably some things that we could say probably weren't quite right for how things might have looked in biblical Israel. I'm not sure the dress in the fabrics are necessarily quite what we would imagine them to be. But, you know, in the same way that actually we often use Christian literature that isn't part of the Bible, so we might have read a book by C.S. Lewis, or we might have read a book by somebody more contemporary, you might have read a book by, oh, I don't know, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, or you might have read something by Steve Chalk, or you might have read something by Pete Gregg, or all those kind of people. And we often use those to help us, and we believe God can speak to us through those works, just like he continues to speak to us through the Bible. And I think the true is the same for art. And I, I'm quite fond and passionate about art, not so much necessarily Renaissance art, particularly modern art, but here's an example, and I quite often like using these, because I think sometimes God has something to say to us through it. So, let's have a look at this. Does anything strike you as odd when you're looking at this picture, which is supposed to be the spies, these two gentlemen on the right, these soldiers that we've heard about, and Rahab, there she is, and they're holding up. You can just see one man's holding something up. He's supposed to be holding up a red cord, the cord that Rahab's going to tie in the window. Is there anything else that strikes you, maybe as a bit odd or unusual, you wouldn't have necessarily expected to see in the picture? Sorry? Oh, excellent. You know, see, a Cavalier King Charles dog. Okay, now I knew it was a dog. And you've gone a step further. Does anybody know what a dog is the symbol of in Renaissance art, or art in general, but particularly Renaissance art? Anyone know what a dog's a symbol of? Okay, so have a guess. Let's, have a, let's see if we can work it out. What, what do dogs mean to us? Pets? Oh, okay, sorry. A few, I've heard something over here. Companions, Companions that's good. Faithfulness, that's uh, the right answer, well done, yes, okay. A dog is usually expected in a piece of classical art to symbolise faithfulness. Wait a minute, this is a prostitute. Not exactly somebody we would think of as being faithful. And note, the dog is at her feet, not at the spies. 
Isn't that interesting? I wonder what the artist intended when he put that there. I wonder if maybe we can find that out. I tell you, actually, we've got a close-up of the dog on the next couple of slides. If we can just, we'll have a little red box around it, and then we'll zoom in on it. If we can just have those two slides, that would be great. Um, why put it in at all? Why put a dog in the painting? Why put a prostitute in the genealogy of Jesus? You know, she doesn't need to be there. A Jewish genealogy almost always just focused on the men. There was almost never a reason to have women in there. So for starters, we've got something important and something that tells us about the value and something that tells us about the importance and significance of women in Jesus' genealogy and, I think, women wider than that. Matthew is giving credence and giving dignity and giving importance and significance to women in general. But it does seem a bit strange, doesn't it? Jesus' own mother was a virgin, but his great-grandmother was a member of the oldest profession in the world. It does seem a bit strange. There's a bit of a, a tension there, isn't there? A bit of a difference. What else do we know about Rahab? If we go on to the next picture, it tells us that on her roof, she had flax. Now, flax is these stalks, okay, of a crop that's used, and you use it to turn it into linen. Okay, you have to beat it about, okay, and then you can soften it. It's soft enough then to weave into a lovely linen fabric, okay? So it would have been a profitable, and it would have been a worthwhile and in-demand occupation that she, and somehow, these were drying on her roof, remember? I expect that her family... And I admit, I'm surmising here. You might choose to disagree with me about this and say, well, there's no grounding for that in what we read in this story, and that's fine. But I suspect that her family were flax dryers and linen workers and linen makers. Because they were on her roof. And I find it strange to think that somebody in a business that would in those days have been in demand and profitable would at some point perhaps have fallen into the line of work that she now finds herself. Maybe she'd made some bad choices. Maybe she'd find herself edged into that line of work. Her reputation and her choices, we assume them not necessarily to be the best things, but what have they become? They've become the defining thing about Rahab. That label that she's assigned becomes all that people think of her for. And her reputation and the choices she made become the thing which defined her. I wonder, do you ever feel defined by the choices that you've made? Maybe by mistakes you've made. Maybe there's something that you know was a mistake, or you feel was a mistake, and you've gone back and you've said sorry. You've said sorry to God. You feel like you've repented. But sometimes even those things, they can still linger with us. And we can still think, oh my goodness, am I really still hung up about this? Am I going to say sorry again? Do I need to do that? Have the mistakes I've made defined me as much as this? And it can be a hard thing for us to face. How do you think God sees those? I think 
he sees right past them. I think he sees right past and right through the mistakes you've made and the ones you've repented of. Yes, we have to repent of our sins. That's part of our understanding of our relationship with God and how we get that relationship right. Sometimes we continue to beat ourselves up about it, to feel guilty about it. And I want you to hear from this today that God doesn't look at Rahab and see Rahab the prostitute. And God doesn't look at you and see you by the mistakes you've made. When the Jewish spies go to Rahab, I think they go there because of her reputation. Now, we could see a number of reasons why they might choose to go there for her reputation. They were soldiers, after all. But also, they're spies. And she would probably be, with her position of her her house, her dwelling place, in the wall of Jericho, she would be well-placed to see the people coming and going in and out of the city. And she would be, I suspect, an excellent source of information for those spies. Information they could take back to their military leader and share about movements of the king's men and comings and goings. Equip themselves ready for the storm and the assault on Jericho. And they gain that information. And she tells them that she knows them and she knows their people. She knows their God and the whole city is frightened. She talks about the skirmishes that she's heard of. She talks about the fact that the whole city knows that the Red Sea has parted for them and that their God is powerful. There are people in the city in which Rahab lives to whom God's promise has not been offered. God's initial offer of salvation, or offer of salvation as we understand it at this point in the wider biblical narrative, is that it's to the nation of Israel. These are the people who God are going to save. These are the people on their way to the promised land. They're there. They're just there, ready to cross the Jordan. It happens in the next chapter. They cross the River Jordan and enter the promised land. But the people in Jericho at the moment have not been offered that story, that offer of salvation. And when the king's guard arrive, ready to destroy those soldiers, Rahab lies. And she lies for the Israelites, for people who should be her enemy. But she's recognized already the power of God. And she's acknowledged the God of Israelites, and she pleads for mercy. She's helped them, and she believes in return she's earned a right to be helped in the future. Maybe she sees this as a way of escaping her past. Certainly she sees it as a way forward for the future. So what happens? What happens? Can we have the next slide, please? Joshua says to the two men who'd spied out the land, this is in Joshua 6, after the walls of Jericho have fallen. He says to these two men, the two men who were here, that we saw just a moment ago. Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and they brought out Rahab 
and her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. We'll just have the next line. The next line. Because of this sign, a red cord in the window. I wonder if that reminds you of anything. Any other occasions of something red? over a significant part of a house. Red cross on a door. Okay, so at the point of Exodus, of leaving Egypt, God tells the Israelites to put, to sacrifice the lambs and to put a, a cross of blood on their door. And the angel of death will pass over their house and not slaughter their firstborn. And in the same way, we can see this as a mark, a symbol of redemption for Rahab and her family, just as the red cross on the door becomes a symbol of redemption for the Israelites. And her house too then is passed over, isn't it? God keeps his promises. And the Israelites keep their promise too. And they spare Rahab. And where does Rahab go and live? Well, initially, they take her and they put her in a place outside the camp of Israel. Now, if we can have, I'm going to try and whiz quickly through three slides here. I hope you can read that. I think that's just about big enough for you. Here's a, my symbolic representation of the camp of Israel. Okay, in the middle is the tabernacle, the place where the presence of God dwells. And then around the tabernacle is the camp, the place where the Israelites lived. And then there is outside of the camp, the place outside. Let's have the next slide. We might want to see that using the following terms. We might think about the things that are inside the tabernacle, that presence of God. Only things are allowed in there if they have been made especially properly, ritually holy. If they have been sanctified and made properly holy. Everything in the camp has to be clean. And those things which are deemed unclean, which have not quite matched up to a certain standard of ritual cleanliness are deemed unclean and are left outside the tent. Sometimes we think that unclean, it's very easy to think that unclean means sinful. And actually, when we think about our culture and the way that we talk about cleanliness and the way we talk about sin, we think about, often think about sin as dirty. So it's a natural and understandable <coughs> assumption to make. But my reading is that actually... Being unclean just means not matching up to a certain standard that allows you to be inside that camp of Israel. And if we go to the next slide, what you'll see is that the priests are allowed inside the tabernacle. The Israelites, the nation of Israel, is allowed inside the camp. And outside the camp is everybody else, the Gentiles. Now, in Acts we hear of a wonderful vision that God gives to the apostles. And he shows them that actually his offer of salvation is open not just to the nation of Israel, but it's open to everyone. It's open to the Gentiles. This is two and a half thousand years later. No, it's sometime later. Sorry, I haven't got my, uh, I haven't got my dates written down here. Okay, uh, it's sometime later. It's quite a long time later. <laughs> 
But something happens here with Rahab that I think is significant and shows us that earlier on in God's big plan for salvation, he wanted to save not just Israel. Further back than we might expect. Because initially, Rahab's reputation follows her. Even here, moving out of Jericho, she can't escape that label. She's labelled unclean and placed outside of the camp. She's been saved from Jericho. And she has come to live with the Jews. And in fact, as we look a bit later, we see that she becomes a woman who must, I think, come and live with the Jews inside the camp. There are two hints to this. One is that final verse of chapter 6, which says she lives among the Jews to this day. And the other hint is what happens in the book of Ruth. Because, as we saw from the genealogy in Matthew, she is Boaz's mother. And Boaz is described in Ruth as a man of standing from the tribe of Elimelech. And I don't think he would be called a man of standing if he and his mother were still outside the camp. To be a member of one of the tribes of Israel must mean you are a member of the nation of Israel. And I think he must be, and Rahab too, must be a member of the tribe inside the camp at this point. Yes, I think there's a Gentile in the camp even as far back as that. And I think God has a a message to say about how he's brought Rahab to salvation further back than we might have expected. That actually her reputation, her labels, they mean nothing. She's accepted her mistake and she's expressed a desire to move on. She acknowledged God in the presence of the spies. She was there, she acknowledged God, acknowledged his power and pray asked for mercy. If you haven't done that, then maybe you can. Maybe one thing's holding you back. Maybe there's something in your past. Maybe there's a reputation that you think still defines you. God doesn't define you like that. The only thing that God defines you by is where you stand with Jesus. You too have an opportunity to confess to God as your saviour the same way that Rahab acknowledged his power, you too can acknowledge God as your saving God, your saving Father through Jesus Christ. And you too have an opportunity to ask for forgiveness, for mercy, and come knowing that God forgives the same way he forgave Rahab and brought her into his family. He wants to do the same for you. It seems like Rahab was restored. We know not every woman in a difficult circumstance like Rahab and not every person in circumstances all over the world, maybe not so like hers, have those opportunities to be restored. But she acknowledges that faith. She saves and is saved in return, regardless of her status. And she becomes a hero of faith. She's there in Hebrews 11. I think if we can have the next slide. Let's move on past that one. Thanks to the next one. 
think there's a few clicks on this one and the paragraphs appear one by one. Okay, so in spite of her past, you can reveal them all actually, I think there's going to be five or six clicks. In spite of Rahab's reputation. Rahab's there in the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Paul writes, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She's also there in James chapter 2. James says, you see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions. And she's there as well in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, as we've already read. Jesus Christ has Canaanites among his ancestors. He has Gentiles. He has those to whom the promise was not initially made. Their past doesn't seem to affect their standing with God. Their reputation is not in the slightest bit relevant. you have a past that continues to define you, God has set you free in Jesus from that. If we skip forward two slides, there's a, a picture of a, a lake. Here we are. In I wonder how far we let our past define us. We let the path that seems dead set behind us define the only way that we can go. And I wonder how far there might be branching points ahead of us where we can make a decision about which way to go. Rahab is there in the genealogy of Jesus because she recognises God, acknowledges her faith, and then evidences her faith through good actions. In spite of her reputation, she's seen worthy by God. She's worth saving. She might not initially seem like a good person, but she is certainly a forgiven person. Her reputation, her history, count for nothing. And Jesus was descended from her. Let's pray. Lord, we know we quite often get things wrong. We don't always manage to see the way that you have set out for us as the right way that we are determined to walk. Lord, will you forgive us for the times we've got that wrong? And Lord, we know there might be stuff in our past that continues to haunt us and we might feel continues to define us. Lord, help us to break free from that and to acknowledge that you don't see us like that. Lord, will you bless everybody here today? And Lord, my prayer for each person here listening today is that actually they will understand freedom from past sin, that you'll give them a fresh sense of grace. And Lord, maybe if there's anybody here who doesn't know you personally, who hasn't come to a full understanding of a relationship with you in Jesus, Lord, maybe today is a chance for them just to seek somebody out ask a few more questions, or maybe there's somebody who they'd like to go and pray with. Maybe there's somebody here who wants to make a, a commitment to you. 
I know if this service wants to find me or somebody else or Jack or someone else and pray with them. Lord, we thank you for saving Rahab. We thank you for saving us. And we thank you that you long to see people brought to you. And their reputation is of no concern of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.